The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, she was one of the most controversial women in Roman history, a ruthless, predatory, and sexually insatiable schemer, if you believe the rumors. But in a wolf-eat-wolf world like ancient Rome, not to mention the shocked, shocked world that followed for centuries after, do we really trust rumors? Did the third wife of Emperor Claudius really disguise herself as a prostitute so she could indulge her lustful proclivities all night long in a brothel? Was she in sexual marathon competitions, ready to take on all comers, so to speak? Who was the real Messalina? How do we know what we know? And how do we, historians and lay people alike, make sense out of knowing what we don't know? Historian Honor Cargill Martin helps us sort out the tangle of the Empress Messalina in her time and in ours today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We will be diving into ancient Rome in a moment, and that is always a good day. I envy our guest, who gets to spend much of her time there. I always feel that pull. You can probably hear it when a guest is an expert in Greece or Rome, I think. What a great way to spend your days reading all those primary sources. And... Imagining yourself back walking around the hills of Rome with those people and those institutions, I find it endlessly fascinating. So that's our main course today. For our appetizer, we'll do an update on literary awe. And for our dessert, we will, well, let's take a look at our list. How about my last book with uh, Robert Chandler? He joined us for a discussion of Pushkin, as you may recall. Will he choose Pushkin for the last book that he will ever read? Or will he perhaps select another Russian? We will see. Ah, specifically of the literary kind. We are looking for examples, and they are pouring in. This is not the casual... Oh, yeah, Chekhov is awesome. Love him. That kind of usage of awe. This is shivers running down the spine stuff. This is the feeling that someone has dropped liquid cocaine into your eyeballs. This is, here I am in the oxygen-starved air of the Tibetan plateau, and my brain is giddy with excitement and heady with the the thinitude of the atmosphere, and my heart is pumping blood that suddenly feels like a flood inside me. And my eyes are taking in the most dazzling colors I've ever seen, the bluest sky, the whitest clouds, the, the brightest silver rocks, and the most gorgeous crystalline lakes. And your mind opens up, and you are in the universe. You're part of it. You don't have a, a cramping little skull confining your world to a brain case the size of a tin can. You have a giant, wide-open mind that's expanding outward toward infinity, taking it all in, just as you, you don't have a body either. You have a soul that comes exploding out of your chest and rushes into the universe like a 
like a giant, enormous river rushing into an ocean until the river and ocean are one giant substance, too. Have you ever read a book that made you feel like that? Or like something close to it? Well, I asked, and we've gotten some answers. Listener David suggests something I've sort of suspected, which is that literature doesn't always quite engage us in this way. Quote, R.E.A. Despite a lifetime of reading, I cannot honestly say that I have ever experienced awe as a result of reading something. I have, however, often experienced awe when I consider the scope of brilliant work produced by certain writers, notably Shakespeare. Also, Whitman, Melville, Dickinson, and, when I ignore his regrettable social and political views, Eliot. End quote. Okay. Okay, that's honest. David, thank you. I appreciate it. I feel that too. Shakespeare, Homer, Austin. I feel the Bible. There are works that have been so influential, and so, Freud even, so influential that it takes my breath away. Not the book itself, necessarily, but thinking about the book and all of its readers and, and how many thousands and millions of hours have gone into the reading of that book and how that has changed the universe. And then there's listener Carl, who has a different slant on literary awe. He writes, quote, I remember hearing about a request from Jack to share a reading experience that was truly awesome. Not how many overuse the word to describe a fun experience, but its actual meaning. The Final Pages of In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust gave me a feeling of awe the first time I finished the seventh novel. How pretentious to imply that I've read them more than once, but it's true. I anticipated the experience of awe the second time and the self-consciousness of wanting to recreate the feeling blocked it. Hmm. Let me pause there. That's a very... A very honest parenthetical. It reminds me a little bit of something that happened with my son when he was, I guess, uh, he was probably about four. And my wife told him a story. She was telling a story. Once upon a time, there was a blue man who lived in a blue world. And there was he had a blue house and a blue car and a blue dog. And And then she told the whole story that way for about a minute. And then at the end, she said, and then he crawled into his blue bed and he put his blue head on his blue pillow and he said, blue night. And my son lost it. He laughed so hard. Blue night. Ha 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 ha. He just couldn't. He, he just laughed so hard. And then he said, tell it again. Tell it again. So my wife told the story again. Once there was a little blue boy who lived in a blue house with a blue dog. And then she finished and she said, and then he crawled into his blue bed and put his blue head on his blue pillow and said, blue night. And my son stared at her. And then he said, okay, try telling it again because it wasn't as funny that time. <laughs> So, read, read Proust, feel the awe, 
Try it again. Doesn't work. Hmm. Maybe you need to try a third time. <laughs> but let's hear what Carl says about the first time. Back to the email. He says, quote, The first time, however, I felt like I was on the top of a tall mountain and I could clearly see the world around me, the joys and pains of life, love for my fellow humans with all their admirable qualities and flaws, and an appreciation that somehow I had been blessed with the opportunity to experience a full and rich existence as a human being. I hope I have the opportunity to read the whole thing again before I die. End quote. Blue night. <laughs> I hope that third reading goes well. But one difference is, obviously, my son was thinking about the... He, he had the element of surprise taken away from him, but listener Carl had the experience of awe blocked by his self-consciousness, wanting to recreate the feeling. So maybe the third time through will do the trick once Carl lets go of that feeling of self-consciousness. His description, Carl, your description, is excellent. I felt that too when I read Proust, and it was connected for me with my trip to Tibet as it happens, as I, I was finishing the last volumes. of. It took me a couple years to read Proust. I read Swan's Way in college on an assignment for a class, and then I kept reading them here and there, volume by volume. I finished the last volumes when I was in China, traveling west by train and by truck, as I ascended into the clouds. And I felt that too, what you did. I, I need to, ugh, that feeling. I need to read my way through the whole thing again. Hopefully I don't have the self-consciousness because that last volume, when everything starts to come together, it makes you want to read and makes you want to live. A new birth for the old, broken-down podcaster. But fear not, dear listeners. There are other ways for this old, broken-down podcaster to feel rejuvenated. We don't have to wait for Proust. One of them is, one of the ways is to talk to a brilliant young historian. In this case, our guest, Honor Cargill Martin, who has written an excellent book about the Empress Messalina. I found it inspiring to talk to Honor and very interesting. Okay, the Empress Messalina. What do we need to know about her before we bring on our guest? I think Honor basically walks us through everything we need to know. But just in case you need a little orienting, here are some basics. Messalina was the third wife of the Roman Emperor Claudius. And she was immersed in the world, in that life, in that world, since the day she was born. The world of empire, I'm talking about now. The world of palaces and palace intrigue. She was empress from 41 to 48 AD. Now, if you've forgotten, I often think of Julius Caesar as the first Roman emperor, but that's not exactly right. He was assassinated before that could happen. Dictator for life was as high as he got, so to speak. Augustus was really the first emperor, reigning from 27 BC to AD 14, kicking off the Julio 
Claudian dynasty. He was succeeded by Tiberius from 14 AD to 37, who was followed by Caligula, 37 to 41, and then Claudius, 41 to 54. So we're, what, three steps removed, I guess, from the start of the Roman Empire. He was, let's see, oh, then Nero came after Claudius. So Messalina was probably born in either 17 or 20. AD. The Augustan period was over. Rome was under its second emperor now. It was proven that the title of emperor would succeed from one individual to the next. Families were scrambling to put their guy on the throne, so to speak, and Messalina was in one of those families that was playing that great game. She was a great-grandniece of Augustus, a second cousin of Caligula, and a cousin of Nero who, as I said, would follow Claudius. She was a first cousin once removed of Claudius. Her grandmother was married to Mark Antony. If you're wondering how there could be so many marital and family ties among such a small group of people while somehow managing to avoid inbreeding, the answer is, first of all, good question. Second of all, they didn't avoid it. <laughs> That's how. They also didn't avoid attacking one another politically and perhaps physically, in their quest to be their sweaty and desperate, their bloody quest to become the next in line. A lot of rumors of manipulation and murder in this world of Rome at this time. We don't know much about Messalina's life before her marriage, and she only lived for about 10 years after she was married. And then for centuries, her reputation was that of a notorious libertine, a sexually promiscuous striver, a master manipulator, maybe a murderer or an orchestrator of it, and so on. Slut-shamed for 2,000 years. All that infamy pouring down on a real-life person like Vesuvian ash flooding a home in Pompeii. And here comes Honor Cargill Martin in 2023 with an archaeologist's trowel or the historian's equivalent of one, to try to remove the ash and see if there's a discernible portrait left behind, and also to talk about the volcano of opprobrium that gave us this problem in the first place. Why was the world so eager to view Messalina in this way? And is the real Messalina lost forever, or can something like a historical version of her be salvaged? Honor. Cargill Martin is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, 
Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Honor Cargill-Martin, an author, classicist, and art historian. Ms. Cargill-Martin studied classical archaeology and ancient history at Oxford, where she also completed a master's in Greek and Roman history, before continuing to the Courtauld Institute, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, of art, where she completed a second master's in Italian Renaissance art history. She's here today to discuss her debut biography, Messalina, Empress, Adulteress, Libertine, the story of the most notorious woman of the Roman world. Honor Cargill Martin, welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to start with a question that I guess it took you a book to probably answer, but (laughs) hopefully we can do that sooner. Who was Messalina? Okay, so short answer is Messalina is a Roman empress. She reigns as the wife of the Emperor Claudius between 41 AD and her kind of assassination slash execution in somewhat uh, dramatic and very mysterious circumstances in 48 AD. Mm. During that time period, she kind of has a massive impact on the development of court politics. And there are a whole host of stories about her life, her allegedly kind of wild sexual antics and her very kind of cutthroat political strategies. Right. And she's been basically a topic ever since. But what do we know about her life, actually? What primary sources, if any, do we have and how reliable are they? <laughs> uh, it's always kind of a horrible question when you're talking about ancient history. So yeah. with Maslina, there are, there are sort of three main historical sources. She lived in a period that's actually remarkably well documented for mm-hmm. kind of 2000 years ago. So for Maslina, there is Tacitus's Annals, uh, Suetonius's Life of the Twelve Caesars, and Cassius Dio's Roman History. And each of these kind of present their own challenges in terms of reliability, both because of the personal kind of agendas of the writers, but also because they're written in slightly different genres as well, which all have kind of their own structures and like necessities. So Suetonius, for example, is writing biography rather than narrative history, which in the ancient world is a genre that comes with its own quite specific requirements. And Mm. so all of those kind of factors have a big impact on the information that we get in those sources. And that's obviously something that we have to take into account. And there are also gaps in quite a lot of those sources as well. But we do also have a whole host of other sources as well as the histories. So we have written sources, poetry, letters, satire, things like that. We also have we have a lot of material sources. So obviously we have Pompeii, which tells us a huge amount about kind of normal Roman life in this period. We have statues of the imperial families. We have inscriptions that tell us things about what they were doing. We have coins, obviously, that tell us a lot about how they wanted to be portrayed. And all of these things give us a kind of a lot of additional information that we can compare to the histories to understand more about like Hmm. why people do the things that they do, essentially. Right. So it it gives us a way to sort of cross-check some of the things that we find in the history to say, well, this probably wouldn't be true. or Yeah. And do the historians have like an agenda or are they, were they part of the court politics or did they have any reason to 
try to slander her or invent <laughs> things about her, promote her or anything like that? Yeah, it's it's a huge question. And each of the historians that are our main sources have a slightly different sort of agenda that they are pursuing. Tacitus, I think, is probably the most interesting one. So he is writing maybe, uh, so he's writing around kind of like the 110s, 120s AD, so a while after Messalina's died. Um, and Tacitus is a senator, and he has this incredibly kind of personally conflicted relationship with the idea of imperial power. He owes a lot of his advancement and his like personal success to some of the emperors that come a little later than the Judeo-Claudians, but he also feels quite strongly on a personal level that imperial power is essentially a very corrupt system mm. of government. Mm-hmm. And I think the power of women and women like Messalina is a real sort of symbol of that for him because it demonstrates to him how far they've come from this kind of Roman Republican ideal of a male senatorial aristocracy holding power under a Republican system. Mm. Okay. I was going to ask you to start with what we know for sure and then talk about the rumors, but maybe we should <laughs> talk about the rumors and the conception and kind of get that on the table of yeah. just what kind of stuff we're talking about here and how uh, scandalous they would be or so we can kind of peel that back and see what's underneath. Yeah. So she was seen, I, I mean, some of these are just kind of outrageous and incredible, but... <laughs> They're wild, aren't they? <laughs> so why don't you give us a flavor of those? Yeah. Yeah, that there are a couple of stories that are just totally insane. Like they are so wild and they're so outrageous. So I think the ones that really stand out to me is there is a story that Messalina leaves the Imperial Palace every night, disguises herself in like a cloak and a blonde wig, and goes and works in this kind of low class brothel in the slums of Rome, kind of just to get her kicked. And this story I find so fascinating because it's just so evidently implausible, even just on like a logistical level. I mean, like this is one of the most heavily guarded and also one of the most recognizable women in the Roman world. The idea that she is getting away with this night after night is just so unbelievable. Yeah. And so I find it so interesting that that is a story that is so kind of persistent. And the other one that, that also sticks out is there is a story that Messalina challenges the most notorious courtesan in Rome to a competition of sexual stamina. They have 24 hours to sleep with the most men that they can. And Messalina allegedly wins with 25. Um, and again, the story is just so wild. And I think that the extent to which these stories hit so perfectly the worst Roman taboos. And I think that in and of itself makes them quite dubious. And I think they also fit suspiciously well into the overall narrative that we'll see is sort of created for Messalina. This idea of her as being very, not only sexually transgressive, but also sexually insatiable and uncontrolled. And also I think this connection of her to the figure of the prostitute is interesting because it's this idea of this feminine figure who the figure of the prostitute in Roman like literature is very often like a destabilizing figure socially. So I think that that also connects to this idea of Messina as like a potentially politically dangerous woman. Right. Okay. So the idea would be maybe she had some affairs, but in general, the exaggerations, if these were exaggerations, assuming that the crazier stories are, are exaggerations, they would have been ways of saying, 
look what a threat she was. Look at how this threatens something about us or something about the male position in society or something. And so the exaggerations were a way of saying she wasn't just someone who was sexually liberated and and doing things like the men were. She was out of control. Exactly. And I think they reveal a huge amount about kind of what the contemporary anxieties are, which is really fascinating. Mm. And that is that women could be empresses? Yeah, so I think there's this sense that women's power is very indicative of the dangers of kind of the new imperial system because women obviously exert that influence behind closed doors primarily. They're not giving speeches in the Senate. And so that, that means of exerting political power is through channels that are generally unseen by the general population. And so I think they're very, they're very often very kind of feared because there's this idea that if an emperor has this ultimate kind of arbitrary power, whoever has influence over him obviously is in a position of huge power and there's no way in a sense to kind of hold that power to account. And so I think women become this symbol of what people fear about this new kind of more monarchical, potentially more tyrannical system of government. And also, obviously, just general misogyny plays a massive role in there as well, because there's this idea that women are intrinsically more irrational and thus intrinsically more dangerous to have in positions of power in your society. Right. You know, we had something similar in America with the example of Hillary Clinton. First of all, she was kind of uh, hated by a group of people who just sort of hated the idea that the first lady was going to be someone who also had a career and was intelligent and capable and all of that. And that's sort of, it ended up growing into this this whole set of propaganda that she was a murderer and she ran a pedophile <laughs> ring and all of this. And it, it did seem to come from this anxiety of, well, here's what's going to happen if we let someone like this be in charge. And it was kind of attacking the idea that she could be in power by turning her into this sort of monster. That's so interesting. And I think it's an example I'd never thought of kind of in relation to Marcelina, because the way they're presented in, in so many ways is so different. But I think it's such an interesting example because it's such a brilliant example of how kind of far into like a really implausible, wild, melodramatic territory that sort of anxiety can take, like mm-hmm. popular opinion. So I think that's, yeah, that's such a fascinating comparison. Now, do we know who started some of these rumors? Can we trace them back? Or were the first reports of them basically saying, well, I'm just reporting on what everybody's talking about? Well, the first reports of them are later than uh, Maslina's life. So we first see them in writing kind of after her death. So it's difficult to trace their exact source. And also with rumors in general, obviously, it's so difficult to ever trace the exact source of rumors. um, That's kind of how they work and why they're so dangerous in a lot of ways. But I think so the first time that we see, for example, the rumor about Maslina having this competition with this prostitute, it emerges really interestingly, not in like a literary work, but in Pliny's Natural History, which is this sort of scientific encyclopedia. And he uses it as evidence, essentially, for the insatiability of human sexual desire in comparison to other animals. Mm. And that, this is kind of a couple of decades after Messalina dies. And I think that is so interesting because it proves that these rumors must have been 
well ingrained enough and widely believed enough for yeah. him to be kind of citing them right. as, <laughs> as, as evidence. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't like a later historian saying, I see how I can use this example to promote my agenda, but he was almost using it as if the way someone might write an encyclopedia entry or something and saying, here's here's an example my audience will all be familiar with. Exactly. And so I think that that really (laughs) proves that some of these rumors at least were pretty widespread quite quickly after her death. Yeah. So they were probably first promoted by people who had a uh, a role to play in the court intrigue that was going on. Yeah, I think that that would not be a far-fetched assumption to make. Yeah. And also kind of in after she dies, uh, she's replaced by another empress who is Agrippina, who is the mother of Nero. I think that it's also possible that quite a few of the rumors that we see about her in later sources were propagated then by the allies of the new empress in order to kind of delegitimize the old empress and her network of allies. But mm. again, this is speculation. We can't we force them for certain. Right. Okay. So let's back up and talk about what we know of Messalina as far as we can strip away some of the rumors and things that might have come from her political enemies and so on. How much do we know about her childhood and her life before she married Claudius? Yeah, so we don't know really anything for certain, for certain. We do we know about her family, obviously. So Messalina really comes from a family that is right at the top of the socioeconomic mm. spectrum in Rome. Mm-hmm. Her family is part of the old aristocracy. They're incredibly wealthy, and they already also have these ties to the imperial family. She is descended from the Emperor Augustus's sister on both her mother and her father's side. So she's immensely well-connected. In terms of actual facts about her childhood, we know very little. We don't actually even know exactly what year she's born. We have to reconstruct it from probable dates of her marriage and also of her mother's remarriage after her father's death. But what we do know is we know an awful lot about kind of what was going on in the social and political milieu uh, that her parents inhabited while she was growing up and what she might have kind of seen the period in which she was growing up was an incredibly turbulent period. It was the end of the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, who, by the time he died, had become really famously tyrannical and quite paranoid and irrational. And then it was the beginning of the reign of Caligula, who obviously mm. uh, doesn't have a great reputation. And we can also reconstruct quite a bit about what her education might have looked like, because we know a lot from sort of other sources. And the Romans actually, elite Romans educated their daughters very well. She would definitely have learned to read and write. She would probably also have been taught literature, history, something of politics, philosophy, maths, um, music. So she would have had a well-rounded education and she seems to have married slightly later than was usual, around kind of 17 or 18. Mm. And what does that tell you? I mean, was she angling to marry Claudius? Was that arranged? Or do we know how they met and how they came to to marry one another? Do we have any sense of whether it was a marriage of love or or if it was politically <laughs> expedient or anything like that? Well, I think we obviously don't have direct evidence of what her views on the marriage were. You couldn't force a Roman girl to marry against her will, but it was it was generally these marriages among the elite were family arranged. Mm-hmm. And I think in Messalina's case, we can, we can definitely assume that that was the case. I mean, she was 17 or 18, Claudius was nearing 50 and mm. not famously a looker. And so I would be kind of surprised if he'd been her, her sort of dream man. 
Yeah. From a familial point of view, it definitely makes sense. Uh, they're both very well connected within the imperial family. And this is a period, so they probably marry in around 38 AD. And this is a period when Claudius is actually being very much promoted within the imperial family. His nephew Caligula has come to the throne and a lot of Caligula's family had been murdered by the Emperor Tiberius. And so Caligula really tries to promote Claudius as his uncle. And so he makes him consul, which is the highest office in the Roman state. And then his marriage to Messalina was almost certainly also part of that promotion because Messalina was young, very attractive, and she was also much better connected within the imperial family than Claudius's previous wives were. So I think we can really discern the workings both of Messalina's family, who are like, this is a man on the up, who's by birth incredibly well positioned. He mm. is the grandson of Livia, the wife of the Emperor Augustus, and of Octavia Augustus' sister. He is the nephew of the Emperor Tiberius. I mean, you can you can get better on that front. And I think we can also discern maybe Caligula's machinations as part of kind of his political plan in the early years of his reign as well. Right. So basically, the marriage would have been one to say, Claudius, he's got the potential to be the emperor. And a marriage with someone with the family background of Messalina might be just what he needs to someday assume the throne. Yeah, although I do think like when they married, I, I really don't think that Messalina could ever have foreseen at the time of her marriage in 38 AD that, that Claudius was going to become emperor. He'd been very sidelined. He'd had some kind of physical disabilities when he was younger and some illnesses. And so he'd never had, and, and the family had really kind of tried to hide him away quite a lot from public mm. view. He'd never mm -hmm. had a military career or a political career. And he was only really starting to be promoted again within, within the imperial family. And he, I think when she married him, he was well placed within Caligula's court. But I think the idea that this was a man who was going to become emperor would not have crossed her mind. Mm. Did she have anything to do with him becoming emperor? Um, I think probably not. So the traditional narrative of Claudius's extension is that it almost happens by accident that Caligula is murdered and Claudius is kind of discovered by these soldiers and they're like, okay, right, we'll make you emperor. And I think that that narrative is, is very convenient. And I think it's much more likely that Claudius is involved to some extent, or like at least knows about the plot that's happening. If he does, it's very possible that Messina was also aware of it, but we don't see any evidence that she is involved in those machinations. And also, I mean, she's eight months pregnant with her second child at the time at which Caligula is assassinated and Claudius comes to the throne. So I think she probably had other concerns as well at the time. Right. Okay. One more question and then we'll take a quick break. Where were the people in terms of empire? Were they, did they view it at this point as, well, this is our system now, we're never going back, but look at these outrageous people that we have as leaders at the moment? <laughs> I mean, it seems like it seems like they went so quickly from regretting the loss of the Republic to basically saying we have this empire now, but Augustus is not a bad leader to basically being ruled by this incredible stretch of misfits and horrible people. Yeah, yeah what a tagline for the Julio-Claudian dynasty, misfits and horrible people. <laughs> that is such an interesting question. And I think so I think what it's important to note is that Augustus doesn't emerge from a republic that is felt to be working well. Right. 
by the time Augustus kind of makes himself sole ruler, um, the Republic has been utterly kind of paralyzed by civil war for at least half a century. Yeah. You know, like, and it, it has been getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and so I think that there is a real sense by the time Augustus comes on the scene that like the current system isn't working. And at least in this system, even if you disagree with it ideologically, you're less likely to to kind of die on some foreign battlefield. Right. So the exhaustion of that is still carrying through and saying, well, these leaders are awful, but the system at least isn't like what it was at, at the end of the Republic. The aristocracy are very tired and the empire at least makes them very, very wealthy because it's very mm. stable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that is, there are real pragmatic things in favor of an emperor, even if on a personal level you have an issue with that from an ideological point of view or you don't like the emperor themselves. I think having said that, this ideological obsession with the republic and this idea that Rome should be a republic has not disappeared entirely. After the assassination of Caligula, Claudius's accession is not easy. And there seems that there are debates in the Senate about whether they should try and reestablish a republic. So this kind of ideal hasn't disappeared. So I think it really depends on who you ask. I mean, if you're Mm. asking someone kind of some peasant at the other end of the empire, the emperor is a totally abstract figure to them. If you're asking a plebeian on the streets of Rome, uh, the emperor gives them kind of exactly what they need. He gives them stability and he gives them pageantry, you know, that old idea of bread and circuses, there is something in that. Um, If you're asking a senator, Mm. that emperor has much more direct impact on their everyday life. So I think it really depends at that level how they interact with that senator, whether they are allied with the emperor, you know, it has like a a big impact on their career. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back and hear about what happened to Messalina after she became empress. Okay, we are back with Honor Cargill Martin, expert in Messalina. Honor, what what happened after she became empress? Do we know what kind of empress she was? Um, what kind of empress she was? Okay, so I would say, in general, she was a very successful empress. Mm. I mean, the the Roman court is an utterly cutthroat, dangerous, like terrifying place in this period. And she maintains a position right at the top of it for the best part of a decade. Um, and she does that, I think, by behaving very intelligently and very pragmatically. And it's so interesting because the rumors that we talked about earlier about her sexuality, I think, have generally led to her being characterized as this kind of very irrational, very passionate, almost kind of bimbo-ish figure, mm-hmm. whereas really she behaves incredibly pragmatically for the majority of her reign. Um, she gets rid of the rivals she needs to get rid of, and she builds these like networks of alliances that really stabilize her position during those early years of her reign. Um, and she also kind of establishes a public persona for herself, um, on the stage kind of in Rome and across the empire. Um, But she's also a very young empress. She's probably about 20 when she kind of comes to the throne. She has two very young children. And she also appears to be, as far as we can tell, quite a kind of personally complex empress. 
Mm. So I think there are a lot of lot of different things going on. Yeah. And was she just in it for herself? Was she part of an alliance? Were, was this was she part of any forces that were seeking to use her in some way? Or can we say that there were families that were feuding and she was on one side of that or the other? Or was this just everyone was in kind of a free-for-all where they're all trying to keep their heads above water? Well, I think that that is certainly a sense that like you have to be in it ultimately for yourself um, if you want to survive. But I think that being said, the way that you ensure your survival is by creating networks of alliances. So the way that the court works in this period, it's all about your access to the emperor and your kind of control of information and kind of the those channels that go between the bureaucracy and the emperor and the senate and kind of the provinces. And so Messalina builds these alliances within this kind of court bureaucracy that is being built in this period of like very powerful imperial freedmen. And she also builds a number of alliances with important senators because obviously she can't go and speak in the Senate herself. If she wants something said uh, in a senatorial context or in a court context, she needs mouthpieces essentially to do that for her. And she also obviously has an incredibly important relationship with her husband, Claudius, I mean, there are lots of instances, I think, in which we can detect them working together. When Caligula is assassinated, his wife and child are killed alongside him. And I think Messalina is hyper aware that any issue with her husband's regime could well mean her death and the death of her children mm-hmm. as well. So her and Claudius, for much of the period, at least have incredibly closely aligned agendas. Messalina is in it for herself, but also she's obviously in it for her children. She has a daughter, Octavia, and a son, Britannicus. Um, and obviously she knows that if she falls, if her husband falls, her children are in an incredibly dangerous position. Mm-hmm. So when Caligula is assassinated, his daughter is killed in a really brutal way. And his daughter is almost exactly the same age as Messalina's daughter. And Messalina obviously would have known Caligula's wife, who's also murdered very well. I mean, these are women who are inhabiting the same social world. They would have been, they would have known each other incredibly closely. And I think that we can't underestimate the impact that that has on the decisions that she makes going forward. Okay. So when you were talking about the sort of court intrigue and how important it would be to form alliances and and access and, and so on, it does beg the question of uh, any affairs. And I know uh, Claudius mm-hmm. had affairs as well, but you could see where that would be a, a real way to try to infiltrate a, an inner circle or a way to expand one's alliances and, and so on. Do we know of affairs that she was having or is it all clouded with rumor? Okay, so I think, I mean, we can't say for certain that she had affairs or didn't have affairs, but I think that our uh, kind of dismissal of the more like outrageous stories about her sexuality doesn't require us to like go to the opposite, opposite extreme and go incredibly revisionist and say Messina is this like icon of kind of good wifeliness and marital fidelity. I think it's definitely not implausible that she was engaging in affairs. I think that, of course, it was illegal in this period and there were dangers involved in it, but I mean, that's very rarely stopped anyone historically. And Maslina is, is a very young woman who also is married to a man twice her age and who is 
also in other circumstances very used to getting what she wants. So I don't think it's implausible. And I think it's also impossible and it would be wrong to overlook the extent to which Masalina's kind of sexuality in her affairs is emphasized in her characterization in the sources. Um, this is something that we do see quite often with imperial women accusations of affairs, but to see it to this extent is incredibly rare. And there are other ways of attacking imperial women. So I think that we, we can't overlook the fact that this is really what the sources emphasize about her. And so I think it's, it's perfectly plausible that she was having certain affairs. And I think the ones that really stand out are there's an affair that she allegedly has with a man called Monasta, who is an ex-slave, who's a dancer, and he is like the ultimate kind of star of the Roman stage in this period. And there's also an affair with a man named Gaius Silius, who is this handsome, incredibly powerful and charismatic aristocrat um, and politician. And these, I think, are the two affairs that I would say I would feel most like confident in saying are plausible historically because they're the affairs that we see the most information about in the most sources um, and which kind of we have most details about and which is constantly emphasized. You wonder if people who were looking at at her and who knew what was going on or the rumors that were starting from truth rather than pure extra grind propaganda, if they were basically seeing her and having the rumors of, you know, well, maybe she's so-and-so's lover and maybe she's now having an affair with someone or she's been rumored to be close to so-and-so. And maybe what yeah. was happening was if those things were viewed as politically advantageous for herself and her husband, they would have been viewed as being kind of normal and part of the world that she was in. But if she was having an affair that was just for love or because for mm. physical attraction or something, people would view that as reckless and, oh, she must be just sexually insatiable. And, and this must be like, how could she do something that that so obviously goes against her her and her husband's interests and and the sex part of her must be out of control? I think it's really interesting. And I think that uh, what's interesting is when we see so her success at Agrippina is also accused of having certain affairs, but that part of her story is incredibly downplayed in the sources. And they mm. characterize those affairs always as being kind of rational political moves, like means of creating alliances. Um, whereas with Messalina, very kind of similar accusations are uh, used as evidence of her utter kind of irrationality. Yeah. And just like this like kind of sensual desire-driven, like, character. So I think it's it's really interesting how this stuff is twisted. Mm. Okay. Now, let's... Uh, I don't know if this is leaving behind the question of sexuality, but she was also accused of various assassinations or assassination attempts. Are there any validity to these stories? Oh, yeah. I think for sure there is validity to those, those stories. <laughs> I mean, the... <laughs> But also, like, that's not as shocking to say as it sounds. I mean, right. if you look at Roman politics and you're familiar with Roman politics, like, yeah. this is just, it's sadly a fact of life. Assassination attempts or assassinations are just a huge part of how politics is done in this period. And Messina is accused of, yeah, a number of, a number of kind of fatal attacks on her rivals. Um, and I think, obviously, there are some of those stories that I think are impossible, but there are also quite a lot that I think... I would buy. Um, and these family, just to, just to clarify, they're not like direct assassinations. It's more that Messalina seems to use these networks of influence that she's created to sort of initiate legal proceedings. 
against her enemies, which then forces them into exile, where they're quite often then murdered, um, or to suicide. And so they're sort of indirect attacks. Yeah. So she's accused of attacking a number of imperial princesses. For example, Julia La Villa in AD 41, and then Julia in AD 43. Sorry, all these Roman princesses all have the same name. And the sources, it's so interesting because the sources characterize these attacks as driven by sort of personal feminine kind of jealousies. They characterize them almost as like cat fights. But mm. these women were very real threats to messing in this position. I mean, both of those women were probably better connected by blood to the imperial lineage than Messalina was. And they could very easily have posed like a serious threat to her position and to her children's position. Um, had they become ascendant at court. And she's also accused of attacking like a number of male courtiers and sen- uh, senators as well. So she's involved, for example, it's a brilliant story. It's crazy. In, in the execution of her her stepfather, um, who's called Apius Solanus in AD 42. And then she's also involved in the fall of this kind of powerful and incredibly wildly wealthy Gallic senator in AD 47. And again, these are presented in the sources as these personally motivated attacks. It's claimed that she falls in love with her stepfather and then is really angry when he won't speak with her. And it's claimed that she just, Valerius Asiaticus, this very wealthy senator, has these gardens that she really wants. And so she has him murdered in order to get her hands on them. But I think in reality, in both of these cases, we can see that these are senators who are very powerful and who are in positions that could potentially threaten Claudius in certain ways. And so I think in these instances, we can maybe see Messalina working with her husband in order to ensure the stability of the regime and her own position, her children's position more generally. Mm. Do you think there's, uh, when we talk about the, the anxiety around this and the way it's fueled these rumors about her throughout the generations, do you think there's sort of this feeling that she was in a a world where there were all these power struggles. And the idea is, well, having a woman's sexuality is like a an unfair advantage. It's a weapon that if it's wielded, it can be so powerful and and men can't really compete with the idea that she could turn someone to her side by taking him into her bed, or she could flirt with someone, or she could have a a coterie of lovers who would effectively be sort of her secret agents or her private soldiers kind of thing, because they would be so captivated by her and and wanting to be so close to her and so on. And, And is there a feeling that well, maybe the women who are around us, the spouses we have, and what if they were able to turn this weapon against us? Or what if what if society were to unlock this power? Women would, would take over. For sure, I think that's a fear. <laughs> and I think it's a fear that we that we've seen kind of that we see in almost every historical society. I think it's incredibly enduring. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is this fear also that it's a power that doesn't necessarily kind of work by the rules of kind of rationality that you can apply to other kind of structural decision-making things, right? And so it's something that can undermine your ability to also predict what's going to happen. And yeah, so I think that it's a massive and a very enduring fear. And I think that Messalina becomes quite a sort of icon of that fear. And -hmm. I think that that's also something that we see in the way that she's received in later kind of art and writing as well. Yeah. How has posterity memorialized Messalina? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, 
what's so interesting is she's basically turned into this almost kind of dehumanized symbol of yeah. female sexuality as a force mm. rather than as a real complex person. And she becomes really a symbol of insatiability and also, and, and that kind of exactly as we were saying, this like masculine fear of maybe female sexuality is something that is potentially a little like unfamiliar to them and uncontrollable and maybe something that they don't feel entirely that they can kind of control and satisfy. Um, and I think she also becomes in posterity this symbol of Rome in certain ways because she's the symbol of this kind of Christian fear of Rome as this ultimately decadent, sensual, vice-driven society, this society that almost like eats itself up and destroys mm. itself in mm-hmm. the pursuit of its own pleasure. And so I think to kind of, for example, like the Victorian imagination, she becomes this this symbol of the decadent society. Mm. And to basically, whether they're cautioning leaders or they're trying to instruct the people around them, the idea is you need to exercise some self-restraint. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the idea is either you need to exercise self-restraint, particularly if you're a man, or restraints need to be exercised upon you mm. and that we need a kind of Christian morality or a, a kind of strong patriarchal system in order to keep these potentially uncontrollable forces in check. Right. Was the treatment of Messalina what drew you to her? I mean, you, you've you covered with the Italian Renaissance and with ancient Rome, <laughs> you've, you've had plenty of figures to choose for your first biography. Was it Messalina herself that interested you in trying to figure out who exactly she was? Or was it this idea of, well, it would be interesting to look at a woman who has meant so much in this particular way to so many different generations of people afterwards? No, it actually came out of her story. So for my master's, I was looking at processes of rumor creation, because there are so many kind of crazy sexual rumors about the judo audience. And the rumor that I ended up focusing on was this rumor about Messalina kind of going to work in brothels. Mm-hmm. Um, or having these competitions with this like connection between messaging and prostitution was what I ended up with. And the more that I looked into the actual historical sources about Messalina, the more that I felt like she was just criminally understudied as a genuine force in the political and the cultural development of this period. She has a massive impact on the way that court politics is done. And she also is a really kind of brilliant case study in the anxieties that these political shifts kind of create and in the culture of this period. And so I think the more that I looked at it, the more that I was like, this would actually be a really fun book to write, a really interesting book to write. And also I started to feel kind of almost pissed off that she hadn't been taken seriously mm. as a proper historical figure. Yeah, that she'd been sort of a, a joke, a, a comic figure, a, a, someone to ignore. Yeah, and I think there's very often this this desire to categorize women, right? Like this desire to either have them be very ambitious and potentially transgressively ambitious or to have them be kind of very passionate and very emotional and very sexual. It's this idea that you're either sexual or you're kind of intellectual. And I felt like she'd really been a victim of that. And that Mm. the session with her sexuality had led to just a a kind of historically inaccurate overlooking of 
the impact that she'd had and of her kind of career. And I wanted to reintroduce some of that nuance. Mm. I have a special bonus question for you. Yes. Are you ready? Um. <laughs> okay. One day, you're walking through Rome on a self-guided tour when a mysterious okay. figure taps you on the shoulder. You're somewhere on the Palatine Hill, and you realize with a start that no one else is around. Fear not, says a woman with kind eyes and a Roman nose. I am the goddess of historical biography, and I have brought <laughs> you to this netherworld to offer you some assistance. You smile and nod, aware that this could supply some wonderful material for your follow-up to your book on Messalina. <laughs> Here's what I can offer, she says. I can transport you back to ancient Rome for an interview with Messalina. She'll be yours for an afternoon. I can't guarantee that her answers will be honest or complete, unfortunately, but you can ask whatever you like and take the answers as they come. The second option is perhaps more unusual. You can return to ancient Rome and be Messalina for a day. You'll think what she thinks and do what she does. While you're there, you won't recall that you are actually Honor Cargill Martin. But when you return, you'll have a perfect memory of what it was like to walk the planet as Messalina. Which do you choose? Well, obviously, I would have to take option two. Oh, it's it's okay. just so much more fun. <laughs> um, I couldn't resist. But I do think option one would be really interesting to see kind of how she tried to present herself. Yeah. Um, if she was like aware that she was being interviewed. So that's potentially more useful from a mm -hmm. historian's point of view in a way. It would be fascinating, but yeah. I, there's no way I could resist option two. <laughs> so you're not worried that you would be thrown into this pit of vipers and go through a horrible day. <laughs> this, this is my like caveat. Like as long as I can pick the year, I want to avoid the autumn of 48 AD. <laughs> I don't particularly fancy getting uh, murdered by my political enemies. <laughs> yeah, we haven't talked about that. How did things end for Messalina? Uh, extremely, extremely badly. So it's a wild story. So the story that we see in the sources is basically that she bigamously marries one of her lovers while her husband is literally on a business trip to a very close by city. Hmm. And that they plan that they're going to overthrow Claudius and make this man Gaius Silius emperor. And then Claudius is appraised of this plan and he comes back and has Gaius Silius and a whole succession of Messalina's other lovers executed and that he then decides that he will see her and hear her out the next day. One of his advisors hears this and worries that if he sees Messalina, he will be swayed and will let her off. And so he sends some soldiers to go and just finish off Messalina and she is murdered in a garden by a group of soldiers. Mm. I think that this story, as we get it in the sources, is totally implausible. I mean, Messalina really has no reason to do this. I mean, she is in an incredibly good position in this period. She has a very stable position. Her son, Britannicus, is very clearly the heir to the empire. If she's that in love with Gaius Cilia, she can just continue having the affair with him. There is absolutely no benefit to her to making him emperor. I think the other problem with this is that when the affair, that this alleged kind of coup and marriage is revealed. There is no indication that Messalina and Silius make any attempt to actually follow through with a coup against Claudius. And I don't believe that they would have taken the step of celebrating this bigamous marriage if they didn't have a plan of what to do next. Because they just kind of separate and try to pretend that it didn't happen. And so I think it's more likely to have occurred is that 
this is essentially a coup that is being enacted against Messalina by her enemies within the imperial court that she's been busy making over the past couple of years, and that they are twisting what is potentially a genuine affair and what may have been a serious party that Messalina and Silius had while Claudius was away, that they're twisting it into this narrative of a bigamous wedding and a coup in order to really impress upon Claudius that this is a very serious issue and to ensure that Messalina is properly removed. So she's murdered and she is then subject to something called Damnatio Memoriae. So the Senate issue an edict and all of her statues are smashed. Her name is chiseled off inscriptions. She's kind of removed from the public history of Rome. Uh, Claudius then remarries uh, to Agrippina, the mother of Nero. Britannicus is ousted as heir. Nero is made the new heir. Um, Britannicus is then probably poisoned. Certainly dies a very convenient a mysterious death. Octavia, who is Messalina's daughter, is married off to Nero, who then murders her. So, yeah, it all goes pretty badly. Mm-hmm. And then the story continues through the centuries as her yeah. name is used and as the stories about her are expanded and so forth, including in your book. Did you feel like when you finished writing it that you had gotten to know Messalina or did you feel like you had had imagined different versions of who Messalina could have been. When I went into writing this, I was like to myself, I'm definitely not going to try and feel like I know her because I think that can be very dangerous like mm-hmm. to, your, to your ability to write a biography. So I, I tried to really avoid it as much as I could, but you can't help but feel a personal connection to someone that you've kind of spent that long with. Yeah. I do feel that I know everything about her, understand everything that she did. But I I do feel like I have understood certain kind of decisions that she made. Mm. As much as I try to avoid it, I do feel a sort of personal connection with her to some extent. Like I do, I feel a certain affection for her. Mm. Let's leave things there. Honor Cargill Martin, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. No, thank you so much for having me. And finally, we talked to Robert Chandler, translator of Russian literature and author and editor of many books, including the one that he joined us to discuss here on the History of Literature, Peter the Great's African Experiments in Prose. After our conversation, I asked Robert to select the book that he would like to be his last. Okay, we're joined now by Robert Chandler, expert in Pushkin and Russian translations in general. Robert, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either name a book that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Um, well, I mean, the writer who means most to me in the world is um, Dante. Oh, Yeah. You would read all three, I guess. I think so, yes. Yeah, right. If it were only one, it would be the, <laughs> yeah. the purgatory. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And do you have a preferred translation for that, or are you reading in the original Italian? I do read in Italian mm-hmm. um, quite a fair amount but by heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a poet I probably know most of by heart. And um, a very close friend of mine, a poet, and a retired psychoanalyst called David Black. Um, he publishes as D.M. Black. Um, he published a, a excellent translation of the Purgatory with New York Review of Books classics. 
mm. um, last year. And I'd been sort of, you know, watching, um, reading drafts of that over over several years. So um, that sort of um, it was a joy to see him get that into print. And um, it was a great pleasure to be sort of brought, you know, given a reason to keep rereading these passages as he was working on them. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people who are really immersed in Dante say the same thing, that purgatory is their favorite. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a little bit counterintuitive. People think hell is going to be the most dramatic and and the paradise is going to be kind of the culmination. But what is it about Purgatorio that, that attracts you the most? Um, well, I think quite a few people have said the same thing, mm-hmm. um, me and David and quite a few other people, that it is Purgatory is the, um, the one section where people are changing. Mm. You know, people in hell are fixed in their hellishness, and in paradise they're perfect, so you can't change from that. Whereas the Purgatory is more, more human, in the sense that people are sort of, you know, they're they're struggling to change. They're um, trying to, you know, they're trying to understand what they've done wrong and um, sort of repent, free themselves of it. So I think that openness to change is is um, the main thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are wonderful set pieces in the Inferno, wonderful monologues. Yeah. But not that um, that pressing sort of urgency that you know we've got to um, got to understand this, which is characteristic of the people in purgatory. Mm. And it seems like as the last book you will ever read, uh, perhaps undergoing some changes yourself, uh, it would be kind of a a perfect fit for that moment. Um, Yes, I guess so. (laughs) Something you haven't thought about before. (laughs) Okay, Robert Chandler, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That wraps up this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Honor Cargill Martin and to Robert Chandler for joining me. You can find Honor's book, Messalina, Empress, Adulteress, Libertine, the story of the most notorious woman of the Roman world at bookstores everywhere. And maybe pair that one up with Robert Chandler's book, Peter the Great's African, Experiments in Prose by the great Alexander Pushkin. Both are highly recommended. Wasn't that fun? I have the best job in the world talking to these smart, smart people. Honor and I have a little treat that we're planning to cook up for you this fall as well. So stay tuned for that little Halloween special. Subscribe now to the History of Literature podcast while it's on your mind. You'll thank me in October. Okay. Oh, and don't forget to send us your experience with literary awe. Has a book ever filled you with vast wonder? Tell us about it. Join listeners Carl and David in giving us your take on this essential question. A life and death issue, if ever there was one. Send us an email at historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com or send us a voicemail to that address. Or go click on the link at historyofliterature.com, talk into your computer for a minute or two, and let us do the rest. We would love to hear all about it, if this has ever even happened. If it hasn't, no hard feelings, people. I'm sure you're getting your awe elsewhere. But do try to find awe in something or other. It's good for the soul. And remember, you only have two minutes if you're recording a message on the website. It will cut you off at that point. So try to be as tight and efficient as possible. 
Speaking of being as tight and efficient as possible, I hear our music is almost running out. So I will try to be as tight and efficient as possible and say, me, Jack, thanks, bye. Or, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.